It's great to see you this morning. Great to be here in person. Great to see you online. And we're glad that you are joining us as well. And we are going to be in Luke chapter 18 in just a couple of moments. So you could turn there. It's page 877 on those black uh, Bibles that are underneath the chair in front of you. Uh, so you could take a moment, turn there, and we'll be there together. Let me ask you a question as we get going uh, for the next couple of moments. A quick question for you. What does it look like, or how do you know when someone has lost heart? Or maybe a, a, another way to say that is, how do you know when someone has lost hope in something? How do you know when you, we just by observing someone, watching them, how do you know when they've, they've lost heart? I feel like that, that phrase, losing heart, that's, a, that's maybe a phrase I hear in boxing sometimes, that a boxer has lost heart and, and started to give. What are the signs that you're, you're looking at someone and, and you can just tell that they've, they've kind of lost hope in something? It could be that they started a new project at work and there was a lot of energy around that project, but at some point uh, you can tell they just kind of give up, like, it, like the, the obstacles got to them a little bit or it was too hard or too tiring. How do you know that someone has lost heart? How do you know in your life when you've lost heart with something, when you've lost hope with something? How do you know that it's just, it's just you, you, you've passed that point where you're not going to put the energy and effort into it anymore? I remember a, there's a story that I thought of as I was thinking about this question and this idea over the last week, and my wife was here first service to, to confirm it, so we can, I can test, tell you that this is, a, this is a true story, and she's not here right now, but I'll tell you what happened. A number of years ago, we were dating at the time, so this is uh, probably 16, 17 years ago. Uh, my wife was finishing up her final year at Bentley University, just, I think, this way, just about a mile and a half, and she lived off Lexington Street in Waltham in an apartment complex, and I was up at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary up on the North Shore in South Hamilton near the Beverly area. And my schedule when I, was, when I was going to school is I would go to classes during the day, and then I had a job where I would get up early in the morning and I would load delivery trucks. That's what I did. And so I would get up about three in the morning, I would load trucks for about four hours, and then I'd try to stay awake during class, and we'd try to find time, Lori and I, to spend together in the midst there. And that was my schedule for three years, and I'm so glad. I don't do it anymore. But during this time, uh, we had this day where Lori had a morning class, and the plan was I was going to get off my shift at like 8.30, 9 o'clock in the morning. I was going to drive down here to Waltham. Lori was already going to be in her class. So she said, I'll leave a key. I don't remember if it was under the mat or behind the rock or wherever she left it. I'll leave a key for you. So then you can come inside, sit down on the couch, relax. When I'm done with my class, I'll come back, and we can go out and spend, spend some time together that day. And she said this to me. She said, listen, and just in case you fall asleep, because she knew I'd be tired, just in case you fall asleep on the couch, don't lock the door. You have my key. So I said, all right, no problem. So I got up and I did all the, all the moving the packages, loading the delivery trucks. I was so tired. I found the key. I went inside. I sat down on the couch. And of course, in about five seconds, I was out cold. Lori came back from class. She pulled into the apartment complex, walked down to the door. You know what's about to happen. She reached out, turned the door, grabbed the doorknob, turned it, and it didn't turn. It was locked. And I'm sure in my tiredness or whatever, I just forgot to make sure it was fully unlocked. You know, sometimes you use the key, but you still got to twist the thing on the back. I didn't do it, whatever I was supposed to do. And so she knew I was inside. She looked in the parking lot. 
And she saw at that time I drove a 1998 Pontiac Bonneville. It was roughly the size of a cruise ship on wheels. And I had Nebraska plates on this Bonneville. They were bright orange and red at the time. So there was no mistaking my car for anyone else's car. That was definitely my vehicle. So she looked out in the parking lot. She knew I was there. She knew I was inside. And so she started to knock. No answer. And so she started to pound on the door. No answer. There was a glass sliding door that was also on the front side of that apartment out onto a deck. So she went over to the glass sliding door and peered through the the Venetian blinds there and could see me in there. And she started pounding on the glass door. Zero reaction from me. And the way she tells the story, she was kicking, screaming, pounding, air horns, honking car horns, getting the entire apartment complex together to scream and shout all at one time. And yet I didn't budge at all. And I remember waking up uh, far too late and flipping over my, open my phone, which will tell you how long ago this was, flipping open my phone, and I could see, you know, you have 34 missed calls. And I, I knew immediately, I knew immediately what had happened. I thought, oh, no. And so I, I called her up, and, and by this time, she had said, listen, I tried everything that I could to get you to come answer the door. But I knew you weren't going to, so I already went to the office, I already got the maintenance person, and they're coming to unlock the door for me. And what happened there is at some point, Lori just lost heart. She lost hope that I was going to come and answer that door. At the beginning, she had hope. She thought, oh, he messed up, he kept the door locked, but he'll come to the door. Surely if I knock, and surely if I I knock harder, he'll answer the door. So she had hope. She had heart that I was going to answer. But at some point, she just stopped knocking and gave up and then took matters into her own hands, and rightly so, so that she could come to a solution. I'm asking you this morning, what does it look like in your life when you've lost heart with something? And let me ask it this way a little bit more directly. For those of you who call yourself followers of Jesus Christ, How do you know when you've lost heart in your relationship with God? How do you know when you've lost hope? I'll just be honest with you. I don't know, even as a Christian, how you you could have possibly have made it through the last 12 months without any moment of feeling like maybe you were starting to lose a little bit of hope or starting to lose a little bit of heart when it came to your relationship with God. I think some people, they would say, I've lost heart and I've lost hope in my relationship with God over the last 12 months. And certainly there have been moments when there's another headline on TV, there's another thing that's happening, there's another uh, um, uh, problem that's arisen in our culture. Certainly there have been moments where you just get to this point where you start to say to you start to wonder if you're starting to lose hope or if you're starting to lose heart. I think it's just natural for that reaction to occur. But how do you know in your life that you've actually lost heart and hope with God? All of us know people. We all know people that at one time followed God with their whole heart, loved him, served him, and at some point down the line, they just went a different direction. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells a parable. And in this parable, he gives his followers, he gives you and he gives me the indication of how we can know if we've lost heart in our relationship with him. 
In fact, look at verse 1 there of chapter 18. This is, Jesus says this is exactly, or Luke says this is exactly what Jesus is doing. And he, that's Jesus, told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not, look at those words there, and not lose heart. This is the story that Jesus tells his followers so that they don't lose heart, so that they don't lose hope. And here it is. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Jesus tells this story to teach us something about what it looks like to maintain hope in God, maintain heart even when life is challenging. And Jesus connects in this story having hope in God and practicing the discipline of prayer. In fact, through this story, Jesus says, you want to know the one way you can know if you've lost heart with God? You want to know the one way you can know if you've lost hope with God? It's interesting. He doesn't say you stop attending church, and he doesn't say you stop listening to worship music, and he doesn't say that you stop even reading the Bible. The one thing that Jesus connects this to, if you don't want to lose hope or you don't want to lose heart in your relationship with God, Jesus says the one way you can know if you've lost it is if you have stopped praying. You know you've lost hope in God when you stop knocking. When you stop going to God's door and over and over again asking him to move and asking him to work. You know what this is like, right? I've done this in my relationship with God. Maybe you have too. That you really want to see God move. And you really want to see God work. And so you go. And you say, God, would you, would you do this? And you start knocking. And there's, there's no response, or at least not a response that you expected. And so you knock again, and you say, God, I need you to do this. We need you to provide. We need you to heal. We need you to, to, to intervene. We need you to act. And no response, or at least not the one you expected. And it's kind of like when you go to start your car and the battery is low. You turn the key or you press the button the first time and that engine almost turns over. You can just almost hear it. But you press it again and just a little bit less the next time and less the next time and less and less and then it just does that clicking thing and then there's one click and then nothing. And so what do you do? You stop pressing the button. Because you say to yourself, there's no hope apart from some other intervention that this car's starting. You lose heart. And so often we can find ourselves doing the exact same thing with prayer. 
that we come and we ask and we come and we seek. And because the answer does not happen in the way we want, in the timing that we want, eventually we just knock quieter and softer and softer. And at some point, we just stop knocking at all. And Jesus says in this parable, in fact, I, I would think he was implying that you could be in the Bible and you could be active in church and you could be doing all sorts of things. But if you are not praying, it is an indication that you and I have lost hope, that God is the ultimate solution, that God is the one we need to intervene. And Jesus says in this parable something that I think is so important and something that I need to be reminded of, and my guess is something that you need to be reminded of as well, that you have good reason, even if God doesn't answer immediately, to continue to keep knocking on his door. And the reason to keep knocking is that God himself is on the other side of that door. Because of the character of God and who he is, Jesus says, you have good reason to continue to keep knocking, even if you don't get the answer right away. Jesus offers us in this passage a contrast here, not a comparison, not a comparison between the earthly judge and God, but a great contrast. You have this widow who is coming to an unrighteous, ungodly judge, and every time she walks into his chambers or into his room or whatever it looked like there in the first century, he rolls his eyes He exists for himself. He's a powerful man. He wants nothing to do with this widow. And she walks in and he rolls his eyes and he knows why she's there. She was there yesterday and she was there the day before that and she was there last week and last month and here she is again pestering him over and over again and he's not in this position for the right reasons and he's selfish and yet because this woman continues to ask, eventually... The unrighteous, ungodly judge says, fine, I'll give you what you want. And Jesus says, if an ungodly, unrighteous judge would do that for someone, how much more would your God, the one who created you, the one who sustains you, The one who, when you walk into his room, he smiles and is happy to see you. The one who wants to hear from you. The one who has the best possible plan for your life. How much more, if we would continue to come to him and ask him to act, ask him to intervene, would the God of such great character respond? I mean, Lori... Lori was right. My wife was right to stop knocking all those years ago. I wasn't getting up, and I wasn't answering that door. But God's different. God is different. He is the one that doesn't slumber or sleep. He is the one that holds this world in his hands. He is the one who is all-powerful and all-knowing and all-loving. He is the gracious, kind, merciful God. He is your rock and your shield and your fortress and your deliverer. He is the one that if you will keep knocking, he is the one who will answer. And Jesus says he will do it speedily. And I think sometimes that speedily in God's kingdom looks a lot different than speedily in our kingdom. But nevertheless, Jesus says, don't lose heart. He will do it. He will answer. In 
And if there's one thing I hope that you're reminded of this morning, one thing that I have needed to be reminded of as we've been studying for this message, and it's such a simple line, but I can't tell you how many times I forget it. When people of faith knock, God answers. When people of faith knock, God answers. Jesus says, you know what my biggest question is? Jesus says at the end of this passage, when I return to this earth, will I find, this is verse eight, will I find people of faith? Will I find people who are continuing to knock despite the challenges in this world, despite the hardships in this world, despite things that we're going through? Will I continue to find people who are faithful enough to knock? Because when my people knock, God answers and I can't tell you how many times throughout the course of my life with Jesus, in Jesus Christ, in the course of even ministry life, it is so easy for me to forget knocking and get my, my mind and my hands on things that are my own ideas. That rather than, rather than take, give, take things and put them in God's hands, I take things and I keep them in my hands. And I forget that the first thing that I should do, if I truly believe who God says he is, is to go and knock on his door and put those things in his hands and trust him with them. When people of faith knock, God answers. Last week we looked at Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. And we said 2021 would be an amazing year if the kinds of things those early Christians, that's Acts chapter 2, that's talking about the earliest of Christians after Jesus was on this earth. It would be amazing if in 2021 we saw God do what he did in the lives of those early Christians. And what did he do? These are the kind of things we read in Acts chapter 2. That awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And the Lord, this is verse, four, verse 47 of chapter 2, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Imagine if 2021 was the year that we saw God come and do the work that only God can do. And we saw what we really need to see in our in our, in our towns and in our cities and in our states and our country, and that is many people putting their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Imagine if this was the year that all of that happened. Well, we see in Acts chapter 2 that all that activity of God is in direct response to the activity of the people. And in verse 42, we read what they were doing. It says that they, that's the earliest Christians, devoted themselves we said last week that that word could easily be translated. It's a Greek word, proskartaneo, and that could easily be translated uh, patiently persistent. That the earliest Christians were patiently persistent in the apostles' teachings and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. That they were patiently persistent in prayer. And that the is interesting there, that there's an article in front of the word prayers, the prayers. What probably refers to, these are all people that came out of Judaism and they had a regular rhythm of prayer in their life within the synagogue. And it refers to them continuing that prayer life. The regular rhythm, rhythm the patient persistence of coming before God in prayer. Jim Cimbala is the pastor of the Brooklyn Tabernacle, and a couple of years ago, he wrote a book called Breakthrough Prayer. 
that if you feel like this is a year that you want to increase your prayer life, I don't know if I can recommend another book as highly as I would recommend that one. It's a fantastic book to read if you want to try and increase your prayer life this year. And in that book, he tells a story. He tells a story of a woman named Estelle. And Estelle uh, left her home in Pennsylvania in the middle of the Great Depression. The year was 1929. And she moved to Brooklyn, New York. And she was just a teenager. But she moved because there was no work in Pennsylvania. And she found a job at a restaurant in Brooklyn. And she earned $20 a month. Fifteen of those dollars went back to her family in Pennsylvania. And she had $5 a month to live on in New York. And life was hard, but at least she was making money and able to help support her family in a time of great need. And a few years later, she met a man named Nick, and he was a great guy, and they were both Christians, and they would go to church together, and they got married, and Nick got a job at Westinghouse, and she stayed home and started to raise their two children. And this life that they were building was everything that she had hoped and dreamed for when she moved to Brooklyn. It got to the point that their children were, uh, their daughter, their eldest daughter was in her early teenage years and their son was about 12. And, and Nick, the husband, he went to his annual holiday party, Christmas party at Westinghouse there. And every year there was alcohol and every year uh, he politely declined. He just wasn't a drinker. And, and so uh, this year, for some reason, they said, Nick, have a drink. And he said, sure. And you know how... Probably can guess how this story goes because you've seen it happen to other people. It just took that one drink for Nick. And he was downward spiraling fast. In fact, it got to the point that Jim writes about how his 12-year-old son would go through the house and find all the bottles of liquor and he would pour them out in the basement before his dad could find them. And, and the, the marriage got really rocky and things got super tense and the, the oldest daughter, in fact, got physically ill, uh, Pastor Jim writes, about, uh, because of all the tension that was in the household around this. And for 23 years, every single day, Estelle would go before the Lord and ask God to heal her husband. She said it was this faithfulness that every single day she would go before, and even when she had to go and get a job at a department store because Nick lost his job at Westinghouse, and he would just sit at home. She, every single day, not just would go to work for the family, but every single day would go before the Lord, and she could have easily taken everything into her own hands could have easily taken it into her own hands and come up with some sort of solution. But instead, every single day, she would come back and she would put it in God's hands. And then one day, in his early 70s, Nick decided he was done drinking. And for the last 15 years of his life, he was sober and came back to the Lord. And Pastor Jim Cimbala writes, he said, I know so much about this story because that's my mom and my dad. And he watched his mom for decades go before the Lord every day. And as his dad was in this terrible, terrible place, his mom would go before the Lord and keep knocking and say, I can take this whole thing into my hands, but I'm putting it in your hands, God, trusting that you know what is best and that you will finally act. And it took a long time, but God did.
like you this week, I watch the news. And it's really challenging to see what's going on in our country. I have no big answers of how we should do things and, and what comes next. And I'm not going to pretend that I do. All I'll share with you is the one thing that I am absolutely sure about in the midst of everything that's going on in our country, between global pandemic and politics and racial tension and everything else that's happening. There is one thing that I am sure about. I am absolutely sure that the way that this all starts to get solved is that God himself comes down and begins to move among us. That God begins to do work that none of us can do. That God begins to transform individual hearts and individual lives because there can be no conversion and no transformation without the work of the Holy Spirit in individual people's lives. And what we need, what I need in my life, what you need in your life, what we need as a church and a nation is we need God to come down and by his spirit begin to individually transform the hearts and minds of people. That's what we need. And until God begins to do that work, we are always going to have massive challenges trying to find our own solutions. And the question is, do you and I actually believe that God is the ultimate solution? And the way you and I know if we actually believe that God is the ultimate solution is to look and to say, are we praying? Are you praying? And i got to be honest with you. I have to go back at myself and look over the last week because I can tell you that I read all the blog posts. I can tell you that I watched all the news shows. I can tell you that I watched the coverage over and over and over again on loops. And someone posts a video, and I'd watch that video, and then another video, and this person had this to say, and that person. I took that all in. But did I pray? Was that my first response? Did you pray? Was that your first response? Are you praying now that God would move and do the work that only he can do? Are we knocking at God's door and saying, God, unless you come down and unless you help, unless you provide, unless you lead, unless you guide, we're in big trouble. You are the ultimate solution. You are the one who we need. And Jesus reminds us in this parable that if we are to have heart and if we have hope that God is the ultimate solution, it will be seen in the way that we pray. That we will be going back to him and saying, God, we need you to move and we need you to act. Prayer is this thing that reminds us to take all these things that we put into our own hands and to put them back in God's hands and trust him with them. Ask him to move. Remind ourselves that he can do more with them than we ever could on our own. And I am so prone, like probably many of you are, I am so prone to take things into my own hands and to try to figure it out under my own power. And I need prayer. I need prayer to be this moment where I go back and I say, no, God, not in my hands, but in your hands. And to begin to knock and say, God, we need you to move. We need you to provide. We need you to lead us.
In the book of Hebrews, we read that when Jesus was on this earth, it says that in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. If Jesus, the son of God, needed to spend his time on this earth going in prayer before his father and doing so with such emotion and with such intentionality that it led to loud cries and tears so that God would hear him and act, how much more do I need to make sure that day after day I'm going and knocking on his door and asking him to move and asking him to act. God answers those who keep knocking. And so the big question this morning for you and for me is are you knocking? Are you knocking? Are you going before God? Trusting that he's the one with the ultimate solution. Reminding yourself that the real answers to all of the problems that we face are not going to be found in this world. They're going to be found outside of this world. Or have we lost heart? Have we lost hope? So that even though we, we are Christians and even though we love God and even though we follow Jesus, we've just focused more on our own solutions. And we've stopped knocking. I needed to be reminded in the midst of everything that was going on. And I think God wanted to remind our church this week that the best thing that we can do, and don't hear what I'm not saying, I'm not saying there aren't important things that we need to be involved with in our culture, but I am saying the most important thing we can do to keep heart and to keep hope is to go back day after day into God's presence and to his door and to knock and ask him to move and ask him to heal and ask him to provide because he is the ultimate solution. And what we really need is we need him to come and transform by his spirit. I'm going to invite our worship team forward as we begin to close this morning. And as we close, there's a song that I wanted us to sing. Because when we stop knocking, when we stop intentionally going and asking God to move, I think one of the biggest reasons is because we have forgotten who's on the other side of the door. We've forgotten that the God who created it all and made it all and holds it all in his hand and who loves you more than anything, anyone else, that he sits on the other side of the door. And if you knock, it might take a day, it might take 23 years, but he will answer. And so we need to be reminded who's on the other side of the door we need to be encouraged that our God is real and that he listens to our prayers. And Jesus didn't want you to lose heart. So he told this story to his disciples 2,000 years ago. And God made sure it was written down so that you could hear it today and that you wouldn't lose heart in the midst of all that's going on, but you would continue to come to God day after day after day and trust him. There's this song that I think I love because every time we sing it, it just reminds me of truth. 
who we are, who God is, what this world really is. And it's a song with a lot of questions and answers, but it starts off this way. Do you feel the world is broken? We do. How could you possibly not feel that? I don't, I don't care if you're, if you're a follower of Jesus or not. You have to feel that. Do you feel the shadows deepen? We do. But do you know that all the dark won't stop the light from getting through? We do. And do you wish that you could see it all made new? We do. That is the promise of the gospel, that God makes it new. All of us that want healing and reconciliation and, and, and everything that we want in our culture and in our world right now, it is God that does that work. And so let's go to him in full confidence in who he is and ask him to move. God, we come before you this morning and we take all that we have and all that we are and we lay it down at your feet. And God, we trust that if we continue to come and continue to call out to you, that you will hear us and that you will respond as you have done for your people throughout generations. And God, we ask that you would hear our voice this morning. God, we need you to come and we need you to intervene. Where there is division, we need you to bring reconciliation. Where there is hopelessness, we need you to bring hope. Where there is restlessness, we need you to bring peace. And God, most of all, we need you to come and by your Holy Spirit, bring many people to yourself. That we would see individuals begin to follow you with their lives and by your Spirit, you would begin to transform us to become more like your Son. God, we need you to heal and to provide. We ask that you will come and do this. And God, I pray that you will forgive us for how we take all of these problems and begin to try to find our own solutions. We take them into our own hands rather than coming back to you day after day and putting them in your hands. So we do it this morning. All the things we carry as individuals, all the things we carry in our families, our workplace, in school, in this nation. We put it in your hands. God, would you move and would you act? And God, help us to be the kind of people who trust you enough and hope in you enough to come back day after day after day, knowing you'll respond. Pray in Jesus' name.